Ian read to us a passage from Luke's Gospel, and it was a parable that, uh, that Jesus told, and we'll have a look at that briefly this afternoon. So, it was about a wedding feast, and just to let you know that this year, for Hannah and me, has been a year of just going to wedding after wedding, it feels like. We've been to six weddings this year. Um, I think three we've been early to, for us. Uh, one we've been on time to, and two we've been a bit late to. One of those was for good reasons. It's where we live, just up the road. Next door we have quite a large uh, Muslim family live next door. Our car was just parked out in the street where you would park your car. Not like badly parked or anything. And on the same day as the wedding we were going to in York, about an hour to get there, uh, one of the girls next door was getting married to a man from the street just across the road. Um, and at about the time we wanted to leave... The groom had processed from their house to our next door neighbour's house. He was on a horse. <laughs> Lots of the other guests had like drums and a massive cohort of people with him. There, was, there must have been a couple of hundred people that had walked up from the street there, just round to our street, and filled the whole street. Literally, you couldn't really go anywhere. So we were looking at the thing thinking, this is amazing. There's a man on a white horse who's the groom. There's people with like full-on sort of television cameras filming it. I guess they, they go overboard. There's a Ferrari uh, just sort of opposite us and still what else do they have? They have a massive Jag that they've got and a Bentley and a few other things in the street and hundreds of people all swarming around our car. So we were a bit late to that wedding. We got in, we arrived at the church as the bride pulled up in her car. Well she wasn't driving but she was being driven in the car that she was in and we did get in just before she did as I was glared at putting on my tie by Hannah as we walked through the church door and it was all a bit scruffy but then again you can't change the habit of a lifetime. So we've turned up to that one a bit late, and we turned up to another one uh, a little bit late as well. But we've been to about six weddings this year, so um, we have a bit of an idea what weddings are like now. And actually, recently, um, just over a year ago, we had our wedding. And I don't know about you, but there's a lot of stress involved in planning a wedding if you're a girl. <laughs> Which is, if, for you people that are boys and not married, it's just brilliant, because you turn up and you say, well, should we get married? Yes. Done. <laughs> then you're taken, your suit is put on you, and you're told to wear it, and sit down and shut up and just say the right things at the right point. But for other people, they have to decide who they're going to invite. The colour scheme, very important. Flowers, address. What else is there? The place, cake, very important. You need a cake. You know, all these sorts of things. And then hundreds of other things as well. So, imagine you've been invited to a wedding. And you get there a little bit late. We don't need to imagine. We've done this. But then imagine you get there a little bit late. And you get to the door. And you see, as you go through the kind of back of the church, that at the front, there's like a row of empty seats. You think, well, there's no seats at the back here. These are all full. You think, well, go on, I'll just chance it. You walk straight up the aisle. And you plonk yourself down over here somewhere on the front row and then imagine what happens when the groom looks at you and goes you're in granny's chair and you get one of these what one preferably one maybe two of his ushers like beckon him over they'll pick you up and they'll like take you out and they'll put you to the back say now that's granny's chair you don't sit in granny's chair that's for the important people to sit and can you imagine then if you have to get up from that chair and walk down the aisle that way and everyone's looking at you. 
and you're going red and you're thinking, oh, I have been such an idiot. I feel really, really stupid. And you get to the back and you kind of stand up and just kind of squeeze in and, and you see the wedding from there. Imagine how embarrassed you would be if that was you. Now, this may surprise you. We have not done that. So that was good. But then imagine it the other way around. Imagine if you turn up a bit late and it all looks pretty full and you just squeeze in the back and the groom at the front looks around and he says, oh, what are you doing back there? And he sends one of the ushers to go and get you and, they pull, and he pulls you up to the front, you're escorted to the front and you're given a seat of honour. Now imagine the difference. Imagine how different you'd feel. One way, walking back down the aisle, you'd feel really stupid. The other way, you're being brought to a place of honour. Well, that's basically the story that Jesus tells in this parable. So I thought we'd have a quick look at... He's not looking. <laughs> Turns out he's looking now. So, thought I'd look at where, who and what. So, like, where is Jesus? Who's he with? And what's he doing? Firstly... Who is he with? No, we've got where there. We'll do where. Jesus is in the house of the ruler of the Pharisees. And that's the who. He's with the Pharisees. Pharisees are like the really religious people. They kind of ran basically what went off in the temple. They were very bothered about what people thought of them. And particularly, they were bothered about what people saw them doing. There's There's a hilarious bit I find in one of the Gospels where Jesus says, you even strain out a gnat when you're fasting. And that just doesn't really make a lot of sense. What he's saying is there that these Pharisees liked to be seen to be doing what was right to the extent that when they were fasting, when they weren't eating any food and they were spending their time praying, before they would have a drink of water, they would like sieve it just to make sure there weren't any insects in it. Which is just insane, isn't it? Just you know, I don't want any extra protein when I'm fasting. But they'd be seen to do this. And Jesus saying, you go to such extremes. And it's ridiculous, because inside you don't really feel like it. And Jesus and some of the other um, people in the New Testament give some of the Pharisees a really hard time for what they do. And a lot of the time we see them trying to catch Jesus out. And this chapter of Luke 14 is one of those. They've invited Jesus round for a meal and if you were invited round for a meal at somebody's house that was a really big deal. So, and if you were invited round, you know, the host would then give you somewhere to sit at the table, which is quite an important deal for them. So Jesus has been invited round for this meal and when he arrives, they've also brought somebody with them who's ill. It's, it says uh, that he's got dropsy. Now, I don't know what that means. I don't know if that means he keeps dropping things or quite what that is. But I'm sure somebody can tell me later. Um, but the, what they've done is they've brought this man in who's ill. And it's the Sabbath day. And the Sabbath, it was in the, the Ten Commandments. It's the one that says, keep a special day. Now, the Pharisees have made up this extra rule of, um, that you couldn't do any work on the Sabbath, even making somebody better. So they weren't allowed to, to work on the Sabbath, but you couldn't like, help somebody on the Sabbath. With, you know, that was thought of as work. So they get this man in, who's sick, who needs help, and they know that if they get Jesus there on the Sabbath, and he sees this man who's sick, he's going to want to do something about it. And they'll trick him, and they'll catch him out, and they'll be able to uh, sort of find out something that he's done wrong. But Jesus heals the man, and then he, he says, but, but what if you're, where does he say it, in... Uh, verse 5 of that chapter he says and if one of you uh, has a son or an ox I don't know why you know, son or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day will you not immediately pull him out say look if someone you know needs some help on the Sabbath would you not help them so Jesus heals this man and they think aha we've got him and then he says 
but would you not help somebody or something that you really loved? So they tried to catch Jesus out. Um, and apparently at these Sabbath meals, they would have a U-shaped table and not like where you is kind of that shape. They wouldn't have it this way up. They'd have it flat down so the host would sit at the kind of bottom of the U and the people would sit along the sides. And the nearer you were to the host, the more important you would be. So that's kind of the who, the what, the where, the who, and the what. So Jesus with uh, the, the Pharisees, in a Pharisee's ruler's house, at a Sabbath feast. So I'll just read you the parable again, so you make sure you know where we are. And he says, When he noticed how the guest picked the places of honour at the table, they're trying to pick the places as near as they could to uh, the, house, the person who owned the house's seat. Jesus told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honour, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host will invite both of you to come uh, and say to you, give this man your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the seat of least importance. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move to a better place. Then you will be honoured in the presence of all your fellow guests. For everyone who exalts himself uh, will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. As I was reading through that, something struck me, and it was a bit, it's quite countercultural. this. Hey. So there's this chap called Maslow. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. I did business studies at GCSE, and my mum told me, if you don't get an A-star in business studies at GCSE, you've not been working hard enough. I didn't. Um, which tells me one thing about my business studies. I didn't work hard enough. So I um, got an A instead. But apparently it was, it was mainly colouring in. Um, a bit like geography. Which is basically, basically true. So there's this chap called Maslow. And he worked out this thing called the hierarchy of needs. And he was saying, look, this is how you get happy in life. And I think the Pharisees back then, unconsciously, were kind of living out Maslow's principles. And people today tend to live them out as well. Let's see if this works. And this is his hierarchy of needs. You have the bottom needs, and they work their way up, and they get like, more and more important until you become truly happy when you reach the very top. So you start out with your physiological, like your food and stuff like that, uh, your safety, so that you're kind of safe, um, social, that's like family, partner, friends, kind of stuff, esteem, people think you're brilliant, um, and self-actualization, the kind of fulfilling of your dreams. And this is Maslow's idea. He says, look, if you can fulfill all these things, then at the top, you'll be truly happy. And from what I understand, Maslow says you get happy in life by pushing and pushing and pushing and, and really trying your hardest to do things and getting people to like you and think you're doing really well and then ultimately doing the things that make you happy because you really enjoy them. But I think Jesus says completely the opposite in the Bible. He says true happiness doesn't come by taking yourself and pushing yourself as hard as you can and, and making yourself feel really good and trying to get everyone to like you and surrounding yourselves with all these things that you've earned. Jesus says true happiness comes from pushing yourself to the bottom and being willing to serve other people, being willing to help other people and living in a community where everyone is willing to help each other. No one's too proud to accept help and no one's, um, yeah, no one's going to be in need. Jesus says we push ourselves to the bottom to make ourselves truly happy. And also, I believe that through what Jesus has done, Jesus actually fulfills every one of these things himself anyway. I think if, when we look at our, 
our physiological needs. There's a bit in the Bible that says God provides for all our needs. In Jesus it says, look, look at the birds of the air. How beautiful are they? They're more beautiful than the richest man in the Bible, a man called Solomon. But God still knows that you have these needs and he'll look after you. So God provides for those. God provides for our safety because the Bible says that we're in a really dangerous place but Jesus has sorted out for us. Our social needs, if we become a Christian, we follow Jesus, we have an immediate family that is not only by flesh and blood but one that spreads throughout the whole world because we have brothers and sisters in Christ all over the whole place. When it comes to self-esteem, our self-esteem can't be any better than if we're a Christian because if we're a Christian, the Bible says that God loves you for who you are, no matter what you've done. God loves you, and he loves you that much that he sent his son to come and die for you. You don't have to work to get other people to like you, to feel good about yourself. If you believe what God has said in the Bible, then you are so loved, it's beyond question, it's beyond belief how much God loves you. And then self-actualization, kind of fulfilling your own dreams. I believe that God fulfills all of our dreams for us. And he says in, in the book of John, the, the next gospel on, that Jesus come to give you life and life to the fullest. So there, I thought I'd show you that. But I think Jesus says true happiness isn't something that comes from pushing yourself to the top. It comes from pushing yourself to the bottom. But I also think that there's a bigger wedding feast that's more important than uh, any of the ones that we've been to this last year, or just over a year, including ours. Um, and it's bigger than, than this kind of parable that Jesus is talking about. I think Jesus speaks in the Bible of a wedding feast still to come in the future. He says one day there's going to be the biggest wedding that you've ever, ever seen. And I include William and Kate in that. Bigger than their wedding. You can ever imagine. He says there will be a wedding one day of me not me, Jesus says, that he will one day marry his bride, which is the church. Now, there's quite a lot of Christians in the world, and Jesus says that they are all together. They make up the whole church. He says, one day, we're going to get married. It's going to have to be a massive aisle, wherever we have it. Because if we're going to like, fit all the Christians who've ever lived up the aisle, it's going to have to be pretty wide. But Jesus says, one day, there's going to be an enormous wedding. I am going to marry my bride, which is the church. And the, the amazing thing is that Jesus says to everyone, you're invited. He doesn't say, you're invited just to come and watch. To sit in the, you know, sit in the pews and, and watch and, and stand up and sing at the right time and, and clap and cheer at the right time. He says, you're invited to come and take part. You're invited to come and be my bride along with all the other people as well. At the end of this parable that Jesus gives, he says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. I believe that there's two ways to respond to Jesus' invitation. He says, look, if you want to come and be my bride, if you want to join in the wedding feast that there's going to be, that'll be the best one ever, there's two ways to respond. There's the proud way or the humble way. The Bible says that one day we're all going to have to stand before God and you know, and at that point, he'll decide our fate. If we go the proud way and we think, well, I'm a good person. I've, had all, I've done all these sorts of really good things. So every time I go to McDonald's and I have a drink that costs me 99p, I always put my spare penny in the charity box. You know, 
I am a really good person. I must have done that at least seven times. That will curry favour with God. What else have I done? I've, I've brought up my children well. I've got a nice house. It's always really tidy. Cleanliness is next to godliness. You know, think of all these sorts of things. I have a re- I've done all these really good things. You know what? When I meet Jesus, when I stand before God, what I'm going to do is I'm going to get all of these things and we just heave them into a big wheelbarrow and we go, look, look at all these amazing things that I have ever done. Look at this, like, you know, wonderful gift that I gave to somebody. I once gave my scarf to a homeless person. We put that in our wheelbarrow of good deeds and we wheel that up before God, metaphorically. And we say, God, look at all these wonderful things that I have done. And God looks on our pile of good deeds and he says, do you know what, to me, they look like filthy rags. Which is quite a scary thing. We think we've done all these wonderful things. And if God is going to say to us one day when we think our way of like getting favour with God is doing like good, nice things, he says, it looks like a wheelbarrow full of filthy rags. We go up really proud. We think I've done amazing here. I've done really, really well. And God says, it looks like a pile of rubbish. You've done it all with like proud motives. You've done it all looking to make yourself look good. We feel, well, I don't know how we feel. We feel probably pretty shocked. Jesus says here, anyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And ultimately on the last day when we stand before God and we try that, he'll say, I'm afraid I never knew you. And we end up in a place that the Bible describes as isolation, in, um, where there's kind of no love, no joy, a place called hell. And the Bible says that that lasts forever. The other option is, when we stand before God and we meet him, we come and we say, God, look, I have nothing anywhere near as good as you to offer. Like, I come without anything. I'm just, I'm just me. But one day, Jesus invited me to be part of his bride. And I said, thank you. And I accepted that. And I love Jesus for what he's done. And God will say, do you know what? Because of that, because you have taken on my son, my, my like, beloved son. He'll say, all those things that you've done wrong. All the things that you've done wrong. Not even the things that you've tried to do nice and good. He says, all those things that have been done wrong. I'll take them away and I'll cast them. The Bible says, as far as the east is from the west. And not just on a compass, but literally, in, like, impossibly far away. She says, all those wrong things that we've ever done will be taken away from us. And the Bible says that the result of that is that we'll spend our eternity with Jesus in somewhere where there's so much joy and so much love and so much compassion and so much fun and in a place that the Bible calls the new heavens and the new earth. So basically I think there's an option for everyone. Jesus invites us to be part of his wedding feast. He invites us to come as his bride, not just as a spectator. And Jesus just asked this question, how are you going to RSVP to his invitation? Ultimately, that makes a difference 500, 1,000, 10,000, a million years from now. If we come humbly and say, Jesus, I have nothing to offer of myself, but I want you and everything that you offer, then God will take us to be with him forever. If we come proudly with all our good deeds and all the things that we think make us look great in other people's eyes, he'll cast us aside and say that he never knew us. So I'll pray 
we'll sing a final song and then Jai will come and uh, give us some notices and stuff like that. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the parable that he told. Father, we thank you that one day there will be an amazing uh, wedding feast, an amazing wedding banquet. And Father, thank you that we are invited to be a part of that. Father, thank you that we can be the bride of the Lord Jesus. Uh, Father, I pray that you'd help us to believe that, you'd help us to take hold of that, and you'd help us to be um, people who live in the light that we have uh, an amazing future with you forever in the new heavens and the new earth. Father, I thank you that you um, invite us, even though we have nothing of ourselves to offer. And Father, thank you that we don't have to work to please you. Father, thank you that you can love us for who we are. And Father, I pray that you would help us to make the right choice to choose Jesus. And Father, I thank you that you give us this option, that you don't just um, yeah, seal everything and, and leave us to ourselves. Father, thank you that because of what Jesus has done when he came and he died on the cross, he can take away all the wrong things that we've done. Father, I pray that you would really make that really clear to all of us, whether we believe in you or don't. And Father, I thank you for this invitation. And Father, I pray that you would help us to respond to you today. Amen.